Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This week, I am joined by Jane Oromosu and Dr. Maggie Semple OBE. I have been looking forward to recording this episode all week. I think it's going to be an engaging and interesting conversation that I think is a very important conversation to have right now. I feel like, as I'm sure we all do, there is a lot of difficult conversations that need to be had. There's a lot of tension at the moment. The world feels more divided than ever. And as much as we need people to talk, we also need people to listen. And I think now is a really good time to listen. And I think that we need people like Jane and Maggie who do the work to help to provide solutions, to provide advice, access, support for us to have some of those difficult conversations and to bring people together more. So without any more from me, let's dive into today's episode of Power Hour. Welcome to the show, Jane and Maggie. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So as I said, the world feels more divided than ever. I think, you know, whether we're thinking about politics, whether we're thinking about race, whether we're thinking about, I know a lot of people personally and professionally who have in their interpersonal relationships with people in their families, with people online, are having lots of difficult conversations and it can be debilitating. People can fall out. It can be so divisive that they never speak ever again. Uh, and as I said, I think we need tools. We need to have conversations. We need to communicate with people more. So before we dive into all of my questions about the book, I thought I'd start with the listeners getting to know a little bit more about both of you and your journeys. So Jane, I'm going to start with you. Uh, 20 years in the corporate world. Now, the conversation that we're going to have today about race, bias, systemic racism, all of these things, I'm sure this conversation was not happening in this way 20 years ago in the corporate world. So if you could take us back to that time or to the start of your professional journey, how did you navigate the workplace as a black professional? Thank you, Adrian. It's lovely to be here. Um, well, the first thing that you need to know is I grew up in Nigeria. Even though I was born in the UK, um, my family left when I was five and I did all my education right up to university degree in Nigeria. So when I came to the UK um, at the tender age of 24, that was the first time I realized I was black because growing up and living in Nigeria, everybody's black, so nobody is. So that was the first shock to my system. And then it was about getting a job and joining the corporate world so that I could then start my life and progress in my career. So for me, it was very much about having to code switch, which is in our book, and I'm sure we'll explore what that means and looks like later. Um, and what did that mean for me? It meant that I had to change uh, the hair that I had. So I, it was, I had to relax it so I could fit in. I was in a very male dominated profession in my early, in the early stages of my career um, and experienced a lot of misogyny. So it was a really hard, tough environment to crack. 
Um, and race was kind of further down the list because I was a woman and that was what was seen as well as my color. So I had a lot of barriers to break. And so I adapted and how did I adapt? By code switching, which meant I stopped wearing skirts and dresses. And I started wearing trouser suits in order for my voice to be heard. And even then it was a battle to be heard amongst a group of white middle-aged men. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm saying 20 years ago as if it's completely different today, which of course it isn't. And I certainly find myself in the work that I do, often in spaces where I'm the only person of colour, I might be, you know, one of the only women. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people that that environment that you're describing still exists. And I suppose from a mindset perspective, because it can be very difficult and very debilitating to constantly be that person who's the only, you know, from a mindset perspective, at the time, did you see those barriers and those blockers quite clearly and think, okay, how am I going to overcome them? Or do you think it was more of a subconscious, you know, changing what you wore, trying to create, you know, code switch and be in that space? Or were you very aware and intentional when you were doing that? I wasn't aware that and it wasn't intentional. For me, it was about survival and about progressing. So I was super focused on climbing the ladder, which I did, and I did it very successfully. But the fallout of that was burnout. Because when you constantly code switch, changing your appearance, leaving parts of you behind at home because you can't bring your full authentic self to work, um, at some point you, you can't continue. It's absolutely exhausting and you use the word debilitating and that's exactly what it was. And so um, it wasn't intentional, it was a way of survival for me. It wasn't about thriving. Now I thrive. I make sure that I'm in environments where um, people are very supportive, they're culturally competent, they have an understanding of what is okay and what's not okay. But they're few and far between. But I'm I'm one of the lucky ones, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to come back to this uh, code switching and also, yeah, for people to understand, depending on where they are right now in their stage in their career in their life what is possible for them. So we'll come back to that. Uh, Maggie, I'd like to come to you. Uh, I know that you've, wow, so many things. You've advised government, you've established a global consultancy firm to help and advise on business ethics, leadership, equity and inclusion, among many, many other things. So my first question for you is, looking back on your career, I think so many people have they, they witness things, they observe it, but they don't necessarily feel empowered to have an impact or they think, well, I can't do it because it's just me. Uh, however, you've of course had an incredible impact and can you continue to do so? So looking back, what was it that drove you to do the work that you do? I have to say, first of all, I was born in London um, and North London at that. So that's who I am. Uh, my parents uh, were Guyanese um, and my father, particularly an engineer, um, came to the UK with my mother. My sister and I were born, but he was really clear about our identity. That's the first thing. So I knew, my sister and I knew, we knew as a family that we were black. So the color of our skin was really important. We were girls too, grew into women, but we were black. And with that came a whole understanding of the political nature of being black. We read books, we read books you know, by authors, my parents read them to us, poetry, literature that helped us understand that. Therefore, for me, growing up, going to schools and different universities, being the only usually 
person who was black in those environments was not new, but also I had a thought, a feeling about what my contribution might be in a particular space. Consequently, when working with people in all sorts of sectors, being clear about who I was really helped. Mm. And I'm not fully formed at all still yet, but I was well formed enough to be able to have conversations with people about difference, about being included, about the language we use. I'm very keen on the language we use. Um, it was not easy, but it wasn't traumatic. It wasn't too much emotional labor, a word, a phrase in our book. It wasn't too much of that in order to make an impact on people. So I'm pretty consistent, I think, in what I think, um, how we treat ourselves and others. I'm pretty um, thoughtful, but also consistent and mm. will, at any free opportunity, help others understand. And the help comes in different forms. I can be quite straight and direct with people, very nicely, of course, but I'm not messing about. And others will be on a journey, I understand where you are today, let's move you together on these issues. Mm. Yeah, and that word help is, is part of it, isn't it? Because it's not about necessarily criticizing and further dividing but yeah exactly giving people a chance an opportunity and then saying it you know that how can how can i help but you ultimately need to be willing i suppose to want to do that and something you mentioned then both well both of you is is that the language of race and i actually wrote this term down and thought actually it's a nice place to kind of start for anyone who might not really be you know familiar with that and and before we of course dive into the book which i think i said already but i'm gonna just say right now at the start so the book is my little black book a blackionary which i love that word now a blackionary the pocket guide to the language of race so yeah i guess uh can you explain to us what this term language of race means yeah i, I just want to start with the title of the book first of all mm. because when jane and i were writing um this book it came to us quite easily a pun on words, my little black book. What do you think when you think about little black book? Most people in business particularly think about their contacts and who are they? We actually have in the book an example of, look at your contacts actually, how many are black, for example? But anyway, so my little black book was kind of fun for us to write about. And then we coined, Jane, did we not, this blackionary. Um, we did. Because it's a play, another play on dictionary, but it's a blackionary. So when you pick the book up, The Pocket Guides the Language of Race, you should know by the title what our perspective is. And even though we talk about race and there are different races, we talk about race from the perspective of being black. But Jane, I don't know if you want to add. Yes, I think we were particularly clever, if I dare say so ourselves, that um, we have quite a few um, hints on the front cover of the book with my little black book and a black dictionary, and then the language of race. So if there was any doubt as to what what is it leaning towards we hope that the the, the title um really gives a lot of clues and and it was fun writing it it was um it was great putting the title together because that was the fun book as you know being an author adrian writing a book the inside is probably the hardest bit but the front cover is is, is the fun bit and, yeah. and it was like that for us yeah and i think to be honest straight away you're so you're right it's very clever it's very 
obvious, but, it, but it's not obvious. And I think the word dictionary, people know what that means. They know what to expect. This A to Z is going to explain to you the meaning of words. And that's exactly what this book does. And honestly, there's so many people that with love and kindness, I really hope I want to send a, a copy of this dictionary because I know that it's a common conversation in the work that I do in the well-being space, in the well-being tech space. I've had in the last few months alone this summer, time after time again, where I've been invited into a space to deliver a workshop, to deliver a talk, and I'm the only person of color. And this, you know, recently there was somewhere where I was working and, and it was for this workshop and this was just 200 people attended. So to be the only person of color in 2023, and then to kind of raise that with the organizers, with the owners and kind of say, you know, have you considered this? Is this an observation that anyone else is making? I feel like some of the, the feedback that I got and get time and time again is, oh, it is something, I, I am aware of it. I don't want you to think I don't care. I do, I didn't really want to bring it up. I feel awkward about it. I didn't know what to say. And I'm just like, aha, now yep. I can give you this book. <laughs> Because it's, you know, it's not about them saying, oh, I don't care, Adrienne. I don't care that you're the only person of color in this space. But just saying to me, oh, I feel awkward about it isn't good enough either. So when I saw this book, I was like, aha, thank you both. Honestly, because I now have something to share with people to say, here's somewhere to start. You know, here's somewhere to start. So yes, language of race. Tell us, what does this term mean? Well, I guess um, if I just start off with the language of race and what does it mean? There is some work that needs to be done for everyone about the words that, and phrases that we use. Because when we think about the words and phrases that we use, behavior usually follows. So there's a thought process, we articulate, and then behavior. And our research showed us, and the organizations we've worked with um, and continue to work with, were demonstrating to us that actually good, well-intentioned people were getting very, um, cautious about talking about race from a black perspective, very cautious. And consequently, we just thought writing this book would be helpful. The language of race is the language that includes everyone. You don't have to be black in order to understand the words, to actually enact the words. It's an inclusive book. We all benefit. And that's what the language of race is. It's about inclusion. It's about ensuring that where there are some words that were a bit tricky to say, or is that what it's really meant? This Blackshenry kind of helps that, I think, mm. that way. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, I think incredibly useful for that starting point. So kind of maybe for some people to get over that awkwardness, to have those conversations, to feel comfortable to maybe say, I feel a bit awkward having this conversation, but I'd like to try. And even for the listeners of this show, I would hope, regardless of who, you know, if you're listening to this show and you're not a person of color, you're not black, you're white. Sometimes people think, oh, this is this an episode I need to listen to? Or is this a book for me? And actually I think to the, you know, the point around the language and inclusion and people understanding how they can, how they can, I suppose, take part in the conversation. Yeah, I tell you yeah. what people have told us, and, and sometimes we actually work with them as well, which is basically open the book up anywhere, any page, and whoever, wherever you are, just talk to your colleague about it. You can be, I mean, any colour, just talk to your colleague. You can be a grandparent with a, you know, a grandchild. Just talk about the word and the definition and then see what's written underneath it. There are examples of what you could do to become better at using the word or understand it better. So mm -hmm. that's why it's a practical book really, I think. Yeah. And it was also to, to answer the question, how do you know when the language of race changes when it moves on? 
And one of the, um, the phrases that we have in the book is black mixed race, and that's moving on. It's no longer appropriate. And one thing that Maggie does say when she talks about growing up and her father growing up, he was referred to as half caste. That is no longer appropriate. Black mixed race, we feel, is also, you know, we're moving away from that because it indicates there are two races when we know there's only one race, which is a human race. Um, and we are challenging certain words in the book that should they still be in today's language? We're, we're moving towards dual heritage because that's what it's about. It's about having heritage from different parts of, of the world. And we're also aware when we were writing the book that new words were coming in. And since we've written the book, more words are being used in everyday language that you know, we're also beginning to collate. But there's a third cultural individual as well, which is a new phrase that's coming in. Um, and, and so we're being really helpful with how language is constantly evolving. And we all have a responsibility first to ourselves and then to each other. And of course, society as a whole of how we keep up with language that's changing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that I want to kind of, I guess, jump on is when you said responsibility, because let's be honest, some people will say that maybe they care about it a little bit, but they don't really do anything about it. So they might not buy the book or, you know, listen to a podcast about race. They might kind of say, oh, I do care about it, but, you know, they don't have time. They don't have time because people are busy, time poor. They might have time to watch Netflix series, but they don't have time. And often they think it's the responsibility of someone else. So I'll hear that about, well, I'm not the CEO or I'm not the, the leadership team need to do it. And everyone can point upwards and say someone else needs to do it. But when it comes to I suppose responsibility and also impact as an individual thinking actually I do have responsibility and I can have an impact what would you say to the individual who thinks they're not really in a position of of influence or or power how would the how can the individual still have a positive impact when it comes to issues around the language of race so I think we all have a responsibility and we all we all need to be accountable um because language starts internally there's an internal dialogue are we aware of how we speak to ourselves? What language do we, do we use internally to either um, make a judgment about somebody else or um, have prior to us actually verbalizing it on the external? Um, and the great thing about my little black book is that it is, you can just open it as Maggie mentioned earlier to any page and it's a really short read. Now, if we can scroll on our phones, we can open the book and have a, two minute read and learn something that day that we may not have known about and think, do you know what? How can I then apply this to my day, my, my eight hours at work or whoever I interact with um, as I'm walking past them, I could just smile because that's a micro affirmation. Um, and it's, there's little tips in there that we can do every day that's not an effort because the, the, the less of an effort it is, the more likelihood that we're going to do it. And then we get better and better at doing it. But Maggie, what do you think? Yeah, thanks, Jane. So I would say that um, I would add to what you've said there, which is to do with, you know, um, really, no matter who you are and where you are, we each have a responsibility to understand the language we use. And to just point upwards in an organization to say it's their responsibility and not mine, um, because I'm not the leadership, um, really is not the best way to approach any of this. Change does not happen when 
the mass people wait for the leaders to do something. Change happens from people who um, are passionate or they're impacted by um, whatever the discussion is, in this case it's to do with race um, and the blacksonry, that should be actually commenting, should feel that it includes them. So I would say um, anyone who thinks this is not for them but it's more um, for those people above them in a hierarchical sense, that's not how change takes place. That's not what influence is like. Um, and I think we've all got a responsibility to affect change for the greater good of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it's quite a defeatist yeah. attitude, maybe yeah. because I'm such an eternal optimist and maybe I have ideas of grandeur, but I think sometimes it's such a defeatist thing to think, well, it's not up to me. Someone else will fix it. Someone else will do it. And I think it's very empowering instead and quite exciting when you think, what role can I play? Like, what can I do? As you said today, not in the future when I'm a leader, what can I actually do today for one other person? If we can do an impact one other person, uh, you know, it could be your sibling, could be your own children, could be someone in your community, could be your, ne your neighbor. You know, that, that impact, as I often, you know, try to encourage people to take action, has to start somewhere. And so, yeah, I hope people also will think about that and think, can you just do one thing today, one thing, and, and maybe downloading or, or ordering the book is a great place to start. So I'm gonna dive in now to some of the, I guess, as it's as we've described, it's got a word, it explains the definition. I'm gonna pull out some of the words that I wanted to talk about with you today. So the first one is bias. Now, of course, this is a big, big topic and you break down underneath bias, the different kinds of bias that we might have, because, I guess what I wanted to talk about today is what people assume or think bias is versus what it really is. Because I think a lot of people, if I was to ask them, what do you think the word bias means? Do you think that you have bias? Ironically, I think it's something like nine out of 10 people think that they don't have any biases, but they would say that, oh yeah, I know what bias is. It's when you kind of wrongly make assumptions, you make a snap judgment, and then you have to kind of, you know, go a little bit deeper to kind of override that or to kind of understand, oh, okay, I've made a, I've made a snap judgment. And I think people think that's where bias ends, but of course it's, it's much more complex than that. So I guess, where should we start? So let's start with that kind of stereotype bias. Um, and if you could explain to us, I suppose, how that can play out in our, in our lives. Hmm. If, if I may, Adrian, I'd like to give the definition of bias before we dive into the stereotype bias. So for us, the definition is the action, treatment, inclination or prejudice for or against one person or group, especially in a way that is considered to be unfair. And you're right, we all have biases, but we may not be able to put a language or a, a label of the type of biases we have, which was our intention with this book. So we cover um, eight different biases to really help people understand what they look like in terms of thought and behavior, and therefore the impact um, on another. But I think I'm gonna go to Maggie, if I may, Maggie, to talk about stereotype bias. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for that, Jane. So stereotype bias, what do we say? We say it's an unfair view that people have about black people based on oversimplified and untrue ideas or images. So then we say, so where does that come from? How is it possible that you've got oversimplified and untrue ideas or images? Well, society and in it and what we read, what we consume, what we eat, who we meet, all of these factors 
um, almost help each of us to have these oversimplified views of others. Mm -hmm. So we helpfully say um, that the, 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 the stereotype comes from the Greek word meaning stereos, which is solid, and typos meaning impressions. We have a solid impression of people actually not based on very much. We have an experience of someone different from ourselves, and in this case, we're talking about black people. Um, you could be a black person yourself, but typically, and it's not the world is not so divided in this black or white, but let's just, for simplification, talk about that. Then, that's to do with um, how we form stereotypical bias based on various sources, such as the media, cultural norms, personal experiences, and societal structures. That's what we do. And we talk about, um, we have biases against others in a, if we put it positively, because we've yet to understand the difference of other people that we've yet mm -hmm. to meet or yet to understand in any way that's going to be helpful. So we talk about, um, we believe things by omission. That is, if there are no black people in Western European classical orchestras, for example, we say, then we might wrongly assume that black people do not like classical music. That's the sort of thing we talk about. It's by omission, and that isn't helpful. So stereotype bias um, has more to do in our terms of understanding. And we actually say there are f at least five things that you can do to spot stereotype bias in yourself. And that's what we kind of go on to say. You know, ask yourself, I'll give you one example. If you make assumptions about others based on their race or other characteristics, so check, do you immediately jump to conclusion about someone based on what you see in front of you. And you have yeah. to ask yourself, what are you basing that on? Your experiences, be, by default, will be limited. So that's what yeah. we talk about, stereotype bias. And, and we also ask the question, are you open to receiving feedback if someone points out that you've exhibited stereotype bias? Because it's okay to say we have biases, but when someone feeds back to us, it's how we then respond to that feedback. So that's kind of a measure for us as individuals as to how open are we to learning and moving our biases forward. Hmm. Yeah, and it can be, well, I've got a few things to say on this, but when you just said that, Jane, how open are we to receiving that feedback? I was so, I suppose, pleasantly surprised, actually, when I had a conversation with someone really recently where he was just, he was, we were talking about a specific athlete and, and it's, and this athlete is a black male and he was talking about him in this very positive way and all of these things. And, you know, he's done something no one else has ever done and his energy and his attitude. And isn't he just, you know, an icon. And then later on in the conversation, speaking about a black athlete, a black female athlete, it was a very different conversation and he kind of had these different things and he was quite critical. And, and I kind of pointed out this bias that I could see and said, well, when you applied that to him, you thought that was a really great attribute. And now when you're talking about her, you're saying that it's not, and it's kind of really contradictory. And you know, sometimes I guess those things, people could be quite defensive. It could have been quite, you know, but he actually said to me really kind of, he was quite shocked in himself. And he said, actually, he said, oh, wow. He said, I'm quite disappointed and surprised by my own bias. And he was like, you're right. And it didn't, you know, it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't, but it was so, I never, it was so refreshing because I've never really had that response from anyone before where he kind of just took a moment and went, wow, I'm, he actually said the words, I'm disappointed at my own bias. And, you know, it's human nature. We all have biases, like you say, but it's about understanding 
I think why it's important to acknowledge it. And I guess that's kind of my question, actually. If someone is in a conversation with someone where they say, oh, you've made a stereotype judgment about the person or you've made, you know, your bias might be influencing you. Sometimes people kind of shrug it off and they are, oh, you know what I mean? Doesn't matter. You know, it's not that deep. You know, it's like, so what? I kind of assumed that person would be good at running or I assumed that person would be into R&B. So what, Adrienne? Doesn't matter. It's not that deep. So why is this actually important for us to understand why is bias important it, it's really about having a a, a level of self-awareness how, how self-aware are are we really about our own biases about the thinking that we have the conditioning that we uh continue to um allow to, to be part of who we are um and is it is it for the good of all because when it's not for the good of all, then we, mm. we have to change ourselves first. As, um, as Maggie said earlier, that, you know, change begins with us. If it doesn't happen within us, it, it's not going to happen on the external. Um, and you mentioned something earlier, Adrian, about it's, it's meeting people where they're at. This is what I always say. Meet people where they're at and then take them, you know, that one step further. And, and when people meet us where we're at and take us one step further, we're all evolving and growing together. And so um, if, if individuals are, uh, brush it off about biases and, oh, it's not really that important or um, it's not a big deal, then that's where they're at in that, in that place. Whereas if someone's like your previous guest takes a moment to, to reflect and take learning, that, that to me is a win. But we can't win everybody. And it's mm. not our job to try and win everybody. What our job is, is, is to have these discussions, to have thought-provoking and, 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 and stimulative conversations so that we can all walk away going, wow, I've learned something new today or become aware of something within myself that I didn't realize was, was still um, part of who I was that now needs to change because it, it no longer serves me for the greater good. So that's how, how I tend mm. to view things. Yeah, and Maggie, I suppose, would you, yeah, this word importance, like why is it important? I think sometimes we assume everybody thinks that it's important when maybe they don't. And so bias is, is one place I wanted to start, but I also wrote down, I wanted to talk, I'm jumping now a few pages on, to cultural intelligence. So I really liked that and I hadn't, um, you know, maybe you could talk to us about what it is, but again, this, this meaning of importance, why is it important? So for the individual, for the organization to, to understand what cultural intelligence is? Yeah, so we say uh, CQ, cultural intelligence, uh, refers to a state of mind in which a person understands and navigates different cultural situations effectively. Hmm. And we comment that the world is increasingly becoming this global community. Technology enables us to connect with people that we wouldn't normally, 30, 40 years ago, naturally connect with. So therefore, we need to be culturally intelligent. And we describe that it's developing the skill to relate and work effectively in different cultural situations. And that for us is to be able to cross boundaries and prosper in multiple cultures. I mean, that's kind of the technical bit that we describe this kind of cultural intelligence. But of course, we particularly look at the cultural intelligence in the workplace. Most organizations attract, retain, keep people who are from all over the world, one might say, or even if they're not all over the world, they might be from one location, but they'll be different. How are people who work in the organization navigating who they are? 
and what is the intelligence of the organization that it's, it's called the workplace, how is it ensuring that it makes, understands what it's trying to do in this space? That is, mm. how is it making people feel included? What does it have within this remit of cultural intelligence? How literate are they in mm. this particular area? And we describe quite a few um, in cultural intelligences. There's cognitive, there's physical, there's emotional and behavioral. So it's, it's a complex but exciting area to tease out mm. cultural intelligence. Yeah. But you'd expect organizations and mature individuals, and they have to be old, just mature individuals, <laughs> sophisticated <laughs> individuals, um, to get some of this. Yeah, and I think some of it they probably do. I think there's parts of it that people think, yeah, okay, I'm on board with that. It makes sense and I'm interested in it. But I think it goes a level deeper when people say, okay, what are we acti actively doing every week, every month, every quarter? And I think when some people, let's be honest, in the world of business, what what what's important gets measured. And sometimes, you know, I do work in the startup world, me and my husband and I, and we consult for lots of startups. And often we'll say to them, what you measure is what you care about. So are you measuring the impact? If you really want to look at the bottom line, how much money you make, because that is why most businesses exist, is to make profit. You know, the kind of people that you're attracting to your organization and the work they're able to do, their own uh, contribution, because if people are not bringing their full selves to work, if people are code switching, exhausted and burnt out. If these, these things impact the bottom line, they impact sick days, they impact participation, they impact engagement, basically saying to people who make the decisions around the money, this impacts your profits and it impacts your customers. It's everything. It's not just this kind of like HR over there, let's do this box ticking. And I think when people really understand, they're like, wow, actually, this is so important for so many reasons, not just because it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do, but because actually you can, yeah, I think in it kind of marry the two things together and the company, the person that's focused on, okay, we want innovation and we want success, thinks this is something else. This is going to drive innovation and success because I mean, you know this better than me. It's just trying to, I suppose, making people aware that yeah, if you're not measuring it, or if you're not actively engaging in this, then it's kind of saying that you don't think that it matters and it's a huge, huge oversight. And totally agree with you there. And I guess what we find, and we get invited often to go into all sorts of corporations to talk about this um, in terms of My Little Black Book and give examples, what we are finding is that for some organisations, this is not a new discussion. They've been hmm. looking at this for some time. They've been looking at how they include people culturally and what is their cultural intelligence as a business. Because they know the markets in which they operate, if they're not clearer in terms of their products, their values, they won't be in the marketplace in 10 years' time. So there's some hard reality of being about being culturally intelligent, is what we would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, like I say, I could do so many things that I want to, uh, I suppose, get through, but I'm going to go back now. Uh, Jane, you mentioned this at the start of the episode. You mentioned code switching. I think this is something that a lot of people either consciously do, unconsciously do. As I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking about my own anecdotal experience and thinking, Adrian, when do you code switch? Why do you code switch? And I'm going to be completely honest and transparent with you and the listeners and say that 
I know I've done it many times in my life, in my career, and it's benefited me to do so. And it pains me to say it, but I think if I had to be completely honest and go back in time to 18 year old Adrienne, I would say the times when you've code switched to kind of be in that space or to have your voice heard in a certain way, I feel like it's been beneficial, but then I also don't want to say to people, code switch is a good thing to do, you know, kind of downplay your personality, change the way you talk, you know, appear more, uh, whatever it is you need to appear. So yeah, so it's a complex one, Jane, but I wanted to kind of bring it back up and say it's something that I've done throughout my entire life. Maybe I didn't have a word for it before, um, but yeah, I guess, is it a bad thing or am I right in thinking actually it's benefited me and I wouldn't have the career that I have now if I hadn't learned how to do that sadly so no thank you for, for raising that we all code switch it's part of part part and parcel of being human um, because how we are in a corporate environment or professional environment versus how we are with friends and family is different it's it's part of the the gift of being human for us and the reason why we um, have brought attention to code switching and what we define as code switching from through the lens of blackness is where we adjust one style of speech appearance behavior and expression in ways that will optimize the comfort of others in exchange for fair treatment which is different Guilty. to when codes <laughs> <laughs> And when we do that day in, day out, and it normally happens in the workplace where black people feel the need, they have to tone their expressions down, maybe not bring in what they'd like to bring in for lunch from home because it could create certain negative comments, um, wear our hair in a particular way so others feel comfortable. So I've got lots, as you can see. I only started my locks when I left the corporate world. I was in the corporate world for over 25 years and I relaxed my hair to fit mm. in. And if you've ever relaxed your hair, Adrian, you will know that back in the day, the hair relaxers would burn our scalp. Now things have improved as time has gone on. And so I went through pain, physical pain, mm. in order to relax my hair so that I would fit in into the working place environment here. I wanted to have locks for as long as I could remember, but I knew that that would impact the way that I was seen and the way I would probably be treated as far as my career progression went. So code switching as a black person at work to optimize the comfort of others in exchange for fair treatment is where, it beca where it's a problem. So the, like the long-term impact is burnout because you're doing it day in, day out. And you're really leaving a lot of yourself outside the workplace, which is not sustainable. Yeah, and I guess the reason I kind of keep want to keep going on this is because I, I did an event earlier this year at the London School of Economics and there was a lot of students there and a lot of students from, uh, a lot of black students and a lot of, of people kind of saying to me, okay, some of the points that we were talking about, it was a different topic. It was actually about perfectionism and about um, career progression. And they were kind of saying to me, yeah, but Adrienne, if I say, let's use this example of code switching. If I do that, if I change my hair, if I change what I wear, if I act a certain way, if I get in the door and I get that promotion or I get that role, then it's worth it. Because if I don't do those things, will I still get in? And it was a really difficult 
question because I can't tell someone, of course, you know, oh, you know, wear your hair, how exactly how you want to wear your hair, wear your clothes, how you want to wear, wear your, the color on your nails, however you want, you know, express yourself and go into that setting as your full version of yourself. If that person knows, well, actually it's going to hold me back. It's going to rightly or wrongly, it's going to hold me back. So what would you say to those young professionals entering the workplace and thinking, I want to be my full self, but maybe I won't be received and my contribution won't be as valued if I do that. Or am I, yeah, I don't know. I feel guilty even saying this because I'm kind of like, I should be advocating for people to just, you know, like forget that and go in as your full self. But I also want people to succeed, you know? So I, I would say that whenever we're going for, you know, for a job or going for an interview, we, we always bring our best professional self into that space. And it's what does that look like? And I know what it looks like for me. Mm. Um, and I right. wouldn't say that that is code switching. That is about okay. bringing your best professional self forward to show uh, the magnificence of who you are and the value of what you bring um, and what the culture value, the culture add is that you bring. It's when you know that your hair, by the way somebody responds to you causes them to feel uncomfortable that you think i'm going to change my hair so you feel comfortable that's when it can become a problem because that is when you start to diminish who you are day in day out at work so i think for me they're two different mm -hmm. things yeah yeah it's like i say it's a complex one um maybe i'm i don't want to make the conversation all about me but i've definitely had experiences especially as a speaker you know as i say in the well-being and tech world where i've gone to present or i've gone backstage to get mic'd up and the mic person was a little bit like oh can i help you what are you doing here and all the speakers before me were white men and i said oh, i'm i'm here to get a microphone because i'm speaking next and the man's face, he was so shocked and he didn't even try and hide it. He actually said to me, he said, oh, you're a speaker. And so he was so surprised to see me there. I had my Afro hair out. I was wearing a bright, you know, and I kind of think it's those kind of examples, I suppose you would call microaggressions. Maybe we can talk about that. That, like you said, they're, exa they're exhausting, they're debilitating. Some people just, oh, laugh it off. But actually it's those kind of examples that I think cause us to code switch where you think, oh, next time I go to do a speaking event at a corporate space, maybe I won't wear my hair out because then people won't be so surprised to see me there in the first place. And that's, you know, difficult. And I think, you know, it's upsetting, but I think, you know, this idea, let's maybe talk about that of microaggressions for anyone who doesn't know what that term is. Uh, Maggie, could you explain to us what microaggressions are and how they can impact us? Yeah, absolutely. More than happy to. So microaggressions, we say, are everyday slights, put downs and insults in the form of statements, actions or incidents that are indirect, subtle or unintentional against members of a marginalized group. So when you break that down, they are actions, they're, they're micro things. So when you hear someone say something to you that you think, that's a bit off, um, that's not quite right. You are left wondering, because it's so subtle, well, uh, am, I, am I being oversensitive about this? Um, did I really hear that correctly? So it puts doubt in you because this person has said something or they've, you know, kind of an insult, but it's not a huge insult. It, it's an, so it, you, it makes you question you. That's the, I think, the, the not very good thing about microaggressions. It places it back on you and you've got to make sense of it. So you carry it for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, 
and so on. So that's what we say. It's about this action towards people, in our case, we're talking about marginalized group being black. We actually have an alternative and a counter to this, which is microaffirmations. And we say to people, you know what, that word you've just raised, or the way you've just described that person could be viewed as a microaggression. You could easily fix that by turning that negative into a positive and turning it into a microaffirmation. So rather than see someone and treat them because you don't quite understand them because their hair or what they're wearing or what they've said um, doesn't conform to what you think they should say, and therefore you respond, which becomes a microaggression, why don't you pause before you say anything when you hear something you don't quite understand and turn it to a positive? So a microaggression, we say, um, you know, they can be blatant and obvious, but they can be, and this is what we're particularly interested in, incredibly subtle, which leaves the person who has heard this statement or seen that tiny action go, was that really true? So you doubt yourself. And that's the thing about microaggressions. It places the emphasis or the burden of making sense of it on the person at which the microaggression was directed towards. And mm. that's not helpful. Yeah, and it's incredibly difficult, I think, when, for example, I exactly, I'm nodding my head furiously because what you're describing, if I then said to somebody, oh my, you know, that, that incident that I just described, which people will go, oh, but that's not what he meant. You know, and other people, like you say, almost like gaslight you because they're kind of saying to you, oh, maybe he just, you know what they said to me? I, I mentioned it to someone and they said, oh, maybe he was just surprised because you're young. And I'm like, come on. I said, I'm not even that young anymore. <laughs> I was like, thank you for the compliment, but I'm not even that young. And it's that, like you said, that seed of doubt where it's like, oh, come on, Adrienne, don't make it a race thing. Yeah. Don't be sensitive. And you constantly find it so debilitating and frustrating where you're the person who's then the issue when it's just, oh my gosh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. So I guess to that point then, if, um, you know, I talk a lot in the work that I do about well-being and about people's physical and mental well-being. And this is something that impacts that and debilitates it. So I suppose from a perspective of, of how I'm always talking to people about what can they do to optimize their own health, to optimize their own energy, how can people deal with microaggressions in a way that doesn't further debilitate them by then having to, uh, I suppose, yeah, defend or, or kind of go through something that's if adds further challenge essentially so to kind of create a space to take care of their own physical health their own mental health what would your advice be to them and throughout our book we do give tips of what people can do under all the various categories and under microaggressions there's many things we could do but one thing i particularly like to do when i hear you know someone pointing a microaggression towards me and i'm thinking well, hold on a moment here am i going mad was it was it just me so i always check it out with somebody else if i can a colleague in the work environment, whoever they are, to say, I've just heard that. Is that, did you hear that too? Or did you see that behavior? So I like to check it out with others, even though actually deep down, I heard it, I saw it, it's true, really. But I just need a confirmation. So I would say, um, talk to a colleague. That's a tip that we say in the book, but also we would say, um, ask someone else, what, did they hear that? Did they, did they get the same reaction? As, as a tactic in that way. We also say um, in our book that we've all got a responsibility that when we hear um, a microaggression, when it's said to somebody else, we should be able to, once we're in that environment, be able to help and correct without being aggressive, 
you might not want to do it publicly, you might want to take the person to a side. But I know with for Jane and I, we find it increasingly difficult to hear something and just let it go. You know, not picking fights. Yeah. We're just saying, we think we should help you here. That is no yes. longer acceptable, what you've just said. Or that put down, it's not a joke. I mean, in fact, we do say, most of us are not comedians. We're, we're not trained to be comedians. Why are you using humor in this way? It doesn't work. Yeah. It's sensitive. Yeah. It hurts, hurts everybody. Stop mm. it. Yes. Jane, anything to add? The only uh, thing that I would add to that is, as the individual that it's happening to, um, it's also about us taking time in that moment just to register it. Because sometimes we're really quick to try and justify um, because it's, it takes us unaware. Um, and I would say, let's get really good at asking the person that is uh, indirectly, subtly, unintentional in some instances with the microaggression. We get good at asking the question, I don't understand what you mean, and put it back onto them. Yes, that is a skill. And I know I've learned that from my sister. My sister's <laughs> wonderful at this. And I learned that way she'd say, that's an interesting thing to say. What did you mean? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the answer to everything. Because they do, I guess they say you're not, you know, escalating, but you're kind of asking them to explain and say, that's that's quite an odd thing to say or an interesting thing to say, what did you mean? And I've started to use that now because it just takes the pressure off me. And then they kind of have to either follow up further or realize actually, yeah, that is a really odd thing I've just said to you. And it's just, it can be a bit awkward. I just had to sip my wine the other day when that happened. I just said, oh, what do you mean? Six wine, <laughs> long pause. Yeah, and silence is wonderful. By us not reacting or responding yeah. immediately, just be absolutely silent and let it really land with them yeah. of what they said. So, yeah, I, I yeah. think that um, yeah. we, we all have to be really supportive of, of each other and, and of ourselves in those instances. Mm. And, and I would add just one last thing, which is, you know what? We can all do this, that is, speak on behalf of others. We can speak on behalf of ourselves. But actually, what we do need is some kind of solidarity on all of this so that you are not the only person left to have to justify why that action by someone else was a microaggression. You need mm. colleagues around you that also can identify and help with the understanding of what microaggressions are about. So yeah. for me and us, a mature organization is one where everyone feels that they've got a stake in helping everyone else. Yeah, yeah, and that it's important and that it's taken seriously and that those colleagues or people that you might turn to to say, hey, can we check in or discuss this, are going to respond in a way that, that is safe actually and that you do feel supported and that if you're I, I think I guess if you are working in a place where you know let's be honest sometimes people say to me they're like there's no way you know that conversation is not welcome here and obviously I don't want to be the person to say to people oh quit your job but in reality if you know you're in a space where this conversation is not going to go any further then I would encourage people to for the sake of their own well-being and their own health to really yeah have that difficult I suppose uh, conversation or decision about whether you can continue to take your wonderful time, treasure, talent, contribution to a place where you're not really valued. And that's, you know, a difficult place for a lot of people. But as I said, we could talk for hours and hours. I would love that. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Power Hour podcast and I cannot conclude this episode without asking both of you to share with us what you typically do in your power hour in the first hour of your day Uh, as it's you know the end of the year I think it's quite a difficult time for a lot of people the mornings are suddenly dark it's gotten cold really quickly Uh, we've got a whole winter ahead of us and if you're anyone like me who just loves the sunshine then you know the power hour in the depths of winter can be a challenge so Jane I'm going to ask you first what do you typically do with the first hour of your day and why? Well, I'm a really early bird. When I say early bird, um, I will be up at 5.30 in the morning. Um, I do love this time of year because I wrap up warm. I have my earmuffs that my son bought me a few years ago um, that have come in really handy. And I put those on and I go for a long walk in the morning. And I literally just listen to the birds because they start coming out about six in the morning. I can also tell what tweets are what birds now. Um, I love the smell of the leaves, the freshness of the leaves. And I do love the cold on my skin because it's a sensation that I really, I enjoy sensations, external and internal sensations because it it tells you you're alive. Mm. Um, And breathing in the air, it's so fresh that time of the morning. So that is my power hour. And I will walk, I have different routes because of where I live. Um, I can go into the park where there are deer in the morning, don't disturb them because depending on what's happening in their season can determine how they respond to a two-legged creature coming in their mist. Um, And then when I, I, I go and get a coffee and I come back and then I'll start my day. And sometimes that can be up to two hours, Adrienne. It's not just the one, I'm very lucky and have the luxury of of two hours. And I feel very grounded. Sometimes I can take my shoes Mm. off and have my feet on the earth because that also helps with the groundedness. So when I come back, I'm I'm like a tree. You know, a friend of mine would say, you know, bend like a tree. You know, so it doesn't matter what's happening in the external world, my roots are deep and solid. So I can bend like a tree during the day and not get uprooted. Oh, love this wisdom. Take it. Okay, Maggie, can you tell us please about your power hour? Yeah, so for me, um, I wake and I always thank the universe for waking up. Mm. And I just think about, I don't know what the day is going to hold, but I just say to the universe, of which she she is a she, um, how um, wonderful it is to be alive and awake and to be able to do some good today. So that's what I like doing. Um, I'm by the sea just at the moment. So for me, um, I either go to the gym, which is a bit grueling, or I go and walk by the sea. And walking by the sea is when I realize again how tiny I am compared to the vastness of the ocean. The the beach is huge, um, but also and deep, but the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean is just enormous. And it just helps me anchor who I am which is small <laughs> and 
I hope very significant, but you know, compared to everything else, a small part of the universe. And for me, um, I, I can sit, it's very warmish here at the moment, um, I can sit and just look at the sea. It's angry at the moment, it's big waves, um, it does a bit of damage on the sand, but it, I think it's a metaphor for life, and that's what mm. I enjoy. Wow. Wow. Thank you, both of you. I really enjoyed hearing that part. And this is, I suppose, why I've been doing this show for so long and why I still enjoy it is because the world is so busy and so fast and there's always so much going on. It feels like, you know, the modern, fast paced world of the world that I certainly live in. And I think it's a really great reminder when I get to have conversations with people like yourselves and ask them why and what do you do? And, you know, there's you could do anything when you wake up in the morning and the fact that both of you you know it's intentional it's something that even just hearing you describe it has made me feel a little bit more relaxed and knowing that as you said we're we're all individually small um but this piece around i suppose gradual impact around the small things the language we use the decisions that we make the actions that we take these small things compounding day in day out over a lifetime are really really important and impactful so i hope that the listeners as i said end of the year maybe it's just me who kind of goes oh my gosh it's pitch black dark jane when you said you know you like the cold on your face i don't so i go out and i i run in the morning and i have my gloves and i feel like for the first five minutes i feel a little bit sorry for myself and i go oh it's cold but of course because i'm running i soon warm up um but i hope for the listeners if you're if you're in my camp of like oh gosh it's dark now i hope you'll still take a bit of time to be intentional about your power hour and to create some space in the morning before you go into your day to do something that's going to make you feel good. Yeah, it's been a pleasure being with you, Adrienne, and the, I can't believe how quickly it's gone. I know, I know. As I said, I, well, we could talk for much longer, especially about the Blacktionary, which I'm now going to be uh, encouraging lots of people to, to buy for themselves, for their friends, for their colleagues and for their organisations. So I will leave a link in the show notes so you can all get a copy. And as always, I appreciate you tuning in to the podcast. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Maggie, so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.